The curse of the Bambino was a superstitious sports curse evolving from the failure of Major League Baseball team Boston Red Sox to win the World Series in the 86 in the 86 year period from 1918 to 2004. While some fans took the curse seriously, most used the expression in a tongue-in-cheek manner. This misfortune began after the Red Sox sold star player Babe Ruth, sometimes nicknamed the Bambino, for $125,000 to the New York Yankees after the 1919 season. Before that point, the Red Sox had been one of the most successful professional baseball franchises, winning the first World Series um, and amassing five of the first 15 World Series titles. After the sale, they went without a title for nearly a century, as the previously lackluster Yankees became one of the most successful professional sports franchises in North America. The curse became a focal point of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry over the years, and living in New England, I can experience new firsthand being a big Red Sox fan. Talk of the curse as an ongoing phenomenon ended in 2004 when the Red Sox came back from an 0-3 deficit and beat the Yankees in the best-of-seven American League Championship Series and then swept the St. Louis Cardinals to win the World Series. That was one of the most joyful occasions of my life to see the Red Sox come back from 0-3, the only major league team in baseball history to do so. The curse has been such a part of Boston culture that when a reverse curve road sign on Longfellow Bridge over the city's busy Starro Drive was graffitied to read, reverse the curse, officials left, left it in place until the Red Sox won the 2004 World Series. After the World Series that year, the road sign was edited to read, reversed curse in celebration. And again, that was, if you lived in New England, everyone recalled that. It was the year in which the Red Sox reversed the curse, bringing much joy and much celebration throughout New England if you were a Red Sox fan. There were many New Yankee fans in New England who, of course, don't even want to talk about it. They want to sweep that under the rug as if it didn't happen. But of course, being a Red Sox fan, I'm always going to bring it up. It's fun to torture your enemy, isn't it? <laughs> well... As I recall that experience and that story when the Red Sox reversed the curse, I was reminded of the eighth chapter of the book of Esther because in the book of Esther, we see that there is a reversal of a curse that takes place. In our continuing study of the book of Esther, uh, in Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, we see that there is going to be a decree that is going to reverse the curse that Haman had placed upon the Jewish people. If you recall last week, what took place? Esther, went, the queen, went before the king and made a request on behalf of her people to save her and her people. When the king found out that Haman had made a decree to annihilate his wife, he was angry. And what did he do? He ended up hanging Haman on the gallows, right? So what did the king do? He took care of the source of the problem is what he did. But that, the problem wasn't over with. Just because he dealt with his enemy and dealt with the source of the problem, 
the, the, the effect of the curse of Haman was still in effect and still needs to be dealt with. Esther realizes this. So now she's going to go before the king once again and usher another request, which will lead to a decree of Mordecai. And Mordecai's decree is going to reverse Haman's decree, which raises a question. How does Mordecai's decree able to save his people and reverse the curse of death that was placed upon them? How was that able to happen? There were three key actions that will lead to the reversal of the curse of death that was placed upon the Jewish people. The first key action that led to the reversal of the curse was that Mordecai himself had been invested with the power to act on the king's full authority and was appointed over his enemy's estate, verses 1 and 2. You read upon the screen as I'll read. You follow along on the screen as I read. Verses 1 and 2. On that day, on what day? On the day that Haman was hanged. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now what you see here is that after Haman has been, been killed, we find out that the king has taken all that belonged to Haman and gives it to Esther. It was, common, it was common in that culture that when someone was sentenced to death, a criminal was sentenced to death, all that belonged to that criminal goes to the state. And the state, the emperor, the king, could do whatever he wanted to. And since his wife was the one who was the target of the decree, he decides to give what belonged to Haman to Queen Esther. Esther goes before the king and says, you know what, I have a relative, I have a cousin, Mordecai, you've got to meet him. So she tells the king everything about Mordecai, not just the fact that he was her cousin, but she also tells the king what kind of person he was, what kind of character he had. When the king finds out about that, what does he do? He takes his signet ring and gives it to Mordecai. This the, the signet ring was the, the instrument that the king would use that represented and demonstrated his authority. And the fact that he's giving it to Mordecai is suggesting that the, that the king's authority is now being transferred to Mordecai. So now Mordecai is going to have all the powers of the king transferred to him. And everything that was Haman's is now going to belong to Mordecai. So everything that uh, belonged to Haman is now under the leadership and headship of Mordecai. That was very important act to, to, that would lead to the reversal of the decree of death that was upon the Jewish people. The second key action that led to the reversal of the curse of death that was upon the Jewish people was that Queen Esther had made an impassioned plea on behalf of her people before the king. Verses 3 through 6. Now Esther spoke again to the king. She fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract, that is to go against the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. 
And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. Now, when he does so, he's, what he's doing here, he's not saying, I'm going to save your life like he did the first time. By, by extending the golden scepter to her now, what he's doing is allowing her the privilege to speak to him. Okay? Continuing. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke, literally to cause to return, the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? That's her plea. Now, she is very shrewd. The reason why the king kills Haman is not because there was a decree upon the people. That's not why he kills Haman. He kills Haman because the decree encompassed his wife. So his concern was with his bride. He could care less about the people dying. They didn't mean anything to him. And she knows that's how he's thinking. And she knows that the edict is still in, is still in effect. So what does she do? She goes to the king with tears. And she says, you know, she says, you know, the edict is still in effect. And I want you to reverse this decree. I want you to reverse it. I want you to take it away. Well, the king can't do that. But she's going to plead with him anyway to do that. And so she knows that the king is not going to simply revoke the uh, decree and she knows that the only, the, the only reason why she killed, uh, he killed Haman was because of his love for her. And she knows that. So she's going to go to the king and say, listen, king. Again, she uses language that doesn't implicate the king in the request. Even though it was the king's signet ring that was used to issue the decree to kill the Jewish people, she doesn't go before the king and say, well, this was your fault. She says it was, it was Haman's fault. It's all his fault. And the language she uses clearly indicates that she's not, she's not implicating the king on this. And what she does is this. She goes, if you, know, if you love me, basically is what she's doing. She says, if you love me, how can you, how can you allow me to suffer because when I see my people suffering, I'm going to suffer. And if you truly care about me, you don't want me to suffer, do you? Then do something about the edict. That's what she's doing. She's making an impassioned plea, knowing that the king has a tremendous amount of love for her, but not for her people. She knows that and says, if you care about me, then you have to care about the people who I care about. Because if you don't, I'm going to suffer when I see their suffer. Do you want me to, do you want to see me suffer, O king? Do you really care about me? That's what she's doing. She's playing on the king's relationship to her, to move him, to act on her behalf for the sake of her people. It was an impassioned plea. This was an important act that Queen Esther makes in order for the decree that Mordecai will make to reverse it. The third key action that led to the reversal of the curse that was upon the Jewish people was that Queen Esther and Mordecai took up their responsibility and exercised the authority that had been given to them by the king. Verses 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, in other words, look, 
He says it with a tone of exasperation. He says, look, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews. As you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. In other words, he's saying to her, I did everything that I can do. Okay? I put the enemy, the source of such a decree, to death. But you now need to take up the authority and do what you can do. I can't do everything, the king says. You need to take up the king's signet ring that I gave to Haman, and you make a decree. You do it. This was a very important step. The king can't simply revoke his decree. What he's saying to her is take the signet ring and make another decree which will counter and cause the other decree to go in reverse. Reverse the first decree is what he's saying. But they needed to do it, not him. He took care of the source. They need to take care of the effect. So those were three important actions that, that, that led to the reversal of the decree of death that was on the Jews. Okay? So now we come to the effect of Mordecai's decree. Okay? The effect of Mordecai's decree. What did it accomplish? What does it do? Number one, the effect of Mordecai's decree of reversal changed and elevated the status of his people in the eyes of the king, which everyone needed to know as quickly as possible. Verses 9 and 10. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which was in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in his own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds." Now, what's important here, what you need to understand, is that the language of Mordecai's decree is almost identical to Haman's decree in Esther chapter 3. And when, when, when Haman made his decree to the Jewish people, he sent out a decree to the, to the satraps, to the governors, and to the princes, which were the three highest administerial offices throughout the empire. Okay? Now, Mordecai's decree does the same thing, except what does he do? He adds the Jewish people to the list. He says to the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors, and to the princes. What does that do? It elevates the Jewish people within the empire. They're included, and their, they, their, their status has changed and has been elevated as a result of this decree. In fact, it was elevated so much that the, his decree placed the Jews first, a place, a place of prominence before the satraps and the governors and the princes. Okay? So their, 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 their status was changed. And he knew that his people needed to know this as quickly as possible, that their status has changed. So what does he do? He sends the decree by, 
by, through horse races, uh, race horses, to get them out as quickly as possible so that the people know that their status has changed within the empire. That was the effect of, of Mordecai's decree, one of them. What was the second effect? The second effect of Mordecai's decree of reversal authorized and empowered his people to defend themselves against their enemy, verses 11 to 14. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives. Apparently, there must have been a uh, incorporated in Haman's decree was a, uh, a refusal for God's people to assemble. And he's reversing it, saying, you can assemble. Okay? So he says, by these letters, the Jews who were in every city to gather together to protect their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possession. On one day, in all of the king's provinces, uh, in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. And the couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Here we see that the result or the effect of Mordecai's decree authorized and empowered his people to defend themselves. They couldn't do so before, but this decree allowed them, it authorized them to take up arms and to prepare themselves for an eventual battle so when their enemies attacked them, they could defend themselves. They couldn't do that before, but the second decree allows them to, uh, to wage a war for self-preservation. Okay, that was the effect of the reversal of Mordecai's decree. Now we look at the result of Mordecai's decree. The result of Mordecai's decree. Mordecai's decree that reversed the curse of death resulted in Mordecai going out from the presence of the king clothed with glory and honor. And the city of Susa was rejoicing. Verse 15, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa rejoiced and was glad. This is a reversal of Mordecai tearing his clothes in grief and the city of Susa being perplexed as a result of Haman's decree in Esther's chapter 3 and 4. It's a complete reversal. Number two, Mordecai's decree that reversed the curse of death resulted in great joy for the Jewish people throughout the empire. Verses 16 and 17. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Mordecai's, Mordecai's decree uh, brought great joy for the Jewish people throughout the empire. And of course, that's a reversal because when Haman's decree came out, they were mourning and weeping and lamenting. And thirdly, Mordecai's decree that reversed the curse of death resulted in many conversions throughout the empire. Verse 17, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. This is a reversal of destiny from death to life. This is the reversal of the curse that was placed upon the Jewish people. It was Mordecai's decree of reversal 
counteracted Haman's decree. That's the story of the chapter. You say, okay, what's the point? What's the significance for you and me as Christians? Well, let me ask you a question. Was there ever a decree that God issued back in the garden? Was there a decree? There was a decree. What was the decree? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die That's a decree that God has issued at the very beginning before Eve was even created. He told the man, you can eat anything you want in the garden, but stay away from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. If you do so, you will die. That's a decree. God's decree. What happened as a result? Well, we know that the enemy came took the decree, manipulated it, and used it to accomplish his purposes. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree. And death and sin was entered into the world, right? So why doesn't God just simply revoke his decree? Why, doesn't, why just say, no, okay, we're, I'm not going to have you die because you ate the, the, of the forbidden fruit. Can God revoke his decree? Just like King Ahasuerus couldn't revoke his decree, God cannot revoke his decree. If he revokes this decree and says, no, you can live, then any decree that God issues from that point on is flimsy. It cannot be trustworthy. So what does God do? He's going to issue a counter edict. He's going to issue a decree that's going to cause the first one to be ineffective or reverses it. Where is that? It's in Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have done what? Because you have caused and have taken my decree to accomplish your purpose in causing Adam and Eve to be deceived and to sin against me. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And the term seed here is a reference ultimately to Jesus Christ. And he shall bruise your head. Christ will bruise you, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, this statement here, our Lord, our Father is saying, I'm going to reverse the curse that you have brought upon this world when I eventually bring my son into this world and he will reverse the curse through his death on the cross and undo everything that you have done. And on his cross, he will defeat you. He will defeat you. And that's what happened at the cross. This decree shows that God will defeat his enemy who was the source of bringing sin and death into the world. And of course, Christ came and did defeat his enemy by going to the cross. But the consequence of what Satan has done using God's original decree to bring sin and death into the world is still in effect. So what must the church do to bring about the reversal of the curse? It must do everything that Mordecai and Queen Esther has done. The church must possess the knowledge that Jesus has been given the power to act on the king's full authority and has been appointed over all that his enemy had. 
In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to his disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And since Satan is the God of this age and God of this world, all authority has been transferred to Christ because Christ defeated him on the cross. So the church must understand if we're going to reverse the curse of death in our day, we must first understand and possess the knowledge that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Number two, the church must make an impassioned plea on behalf of her people before the king, as Queen Esther did. God has defeated the enemy, but the church must take what she can do and go before the king and make an impassioned plea and say, Lord, I have a brother, a sister, an uncle, or cousin who doesn't know you. They have the, they have the sin and death degree of death has been placed upon them. I don't want them to die. I don't want them to spend eternity without you. Will you hear my prayer because of your love for me and save them because of the relationship I have with you? That's what Esther did. And Esther was the bride of the king. The church is the bride of Christ. Will the church do the same? The church must make an impassioned plea on behalf of her people before the king. And thirdly, the church must take up her responsibility and exercise the authority that has been given to her by the, queen, by the king, as Queen Esther did. What authority has, do we have as Christians? We have the authority to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We have the authority to proclaim God's word. We have the authority to stand against our adversary. Luke 9, 1 says, Then Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and cure diseases. When that happens, you're seeing the beginning of the reverse of the curse that sin and death brought into this world. When Jesus had his healing ministry, what you're seeing is the reversal of the curse of sin and death that was brought into this world. The kingdom of God reverses the curse. So that's what the church must do. And when the church does this and people respond in faith, then what happens? God's decree of reversal changes and elevates the status of his people before the eyes of the king. Right? When people believe in Jesus, their, their status changes from being slaves to being sons and daughters of the king. There's been a status change immediately is what takes place. And secondly, God's decree of reversal authorizes and empowers his people to defend themselves against the enemy. Right? Ephesians chapter 6, you put on the whole armor of God. And that only goes to those who have a change in status. And when the armor goes on, we are empowered to do that and defend ourselves against the attacks of the evil one who seeks to destroy us. And to ruin our lives and make our lives more difficult. And notice that as in Esther's story, the, the children of Israel were only to use the weaponry in self-defense. When you look at the armor in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor is predominantly defensive. The breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation. Girding yourself with truth. Shoes of peace. The only offensive weapon that you have is the sword of the spirit. That's it. But it's defensive. 
And this is what God does when the reversal of the curse happens. He authorizes and empowers his people to defend themselves against the enemy. And the result of God's decree is the same as the same is the same as Mordecai's. God's decree of reversal will result in Jesus going out from the presence of the king, clothed with glory and honor, as Mordecai did. God's decree of reversal will result in great joy for the people of God, just as it was for the Jewish people. And God's decree of reversal will result in many conversions, just as it did in Mordecai's day. This is what the reverse of the curse does. This is what this is the lesson of Esther chapter 8. It reverses the curse. And we need to know that. You know, when I first started my study in the book of Esther, there are many commentaries that will ask the question, what on earth does the book of Esther have to do with Christianity? Because it's about the Jewish people hundreds of years ago before Christ came. It's their experience. What does it have to do with the church? What does it have to do with the Christians? The book of Esther can only properly be understood and interpreted when you read the book through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the interpretive key of understanding any Old Testament book correctly. You only understand the book of Esther the way God wants it to be understood when you understand it through the lens of faith in Jesus. This book has everything to say to us concerning our faith in Jesus Christ because it simply foreshadows it and gives us a story to place the New Testament teaching in context. To share this truth in story form helps us to remember the truth and to live it out in our own lives. This is the story of Esther chapter 8. God has dealt with the source of sin and death, but its effect still lingers, and the church has been called to take up the power and authority given to her to exercise that authority in order to help people come to faith and reverse the curse that Satan has introduced into the world. May we not forget that. And may we as a church use the power and authority given to us so that the curse may be reversed in our own lives as we live our lives faithfully in Christ and to those who still have the sentence of death upon them. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. We come to you, Lord, understanding that we know that the enemy's effect of death is still out there. It's still in effect. Lord, may we do what Esther did. May the church do what Esther has done. May we understand and know that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth. May we make the impassioned plea to, to you to save those and bring those who are destined to spend eternity away from you to know you and to be with you. And may we exercise that power that you have given us as a church, as your bride, to bring about many conversions as we participate together with you in your work in the world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and for this chapter. Give us the strength that we need and the, and the boldness that we need to speak your truth and to live it out in ways that people will see so that their lives may be changed and the curse reversed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.